Hi, I'm David Green, and you're listening to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. If you are tuning into this episode or are a frequent follower of the podcast, chances are that you're on your journey towards creating a data-driven HR function, or you're already a data enthusiast looking to take your people analytics to new heights. Regardless of where you are on this path, today's conversation is one that is going to transform the way you think about HR data, as today I am joined by Paul Rubenstein, CHRO of Vizia, the sponsor of this series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Paul's passion for data-driven HR and his visionary insights have made him a prominent figure in the HR community, inspiring professionals worldwide to embrace data as a powerful tool for shaping the future of their organizations. From the synergies between HR and CFOs in data utilization to overcoming the challenges faced by people analytics, Today, Paul and I will discuss how organisations can unlock the true potential of HR data to drive strategic decision-making and create a data-driven culture. We'll explore the critical role of data in transforming HR from a reactive support function to a proactive strategic partner within organisations. We'll dive into the practical aspects of implementing data-driven strategies within HR and we'll venture into the realm of how cutting-edge technologies such as generative AI can empower HR leaders to extract deeper insights and drive unprecedented value for their organisations. So without further ado, let's start the conversation with a brief introduction to Paul, his background and his unique role at Vizia. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Paul Rubenstein, CHRO at Vizia, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Can you share a little bit about your background and and what your role at at Vizia entails? Sure. Well, I'm Paul. I'm the uh, head of HR at Vizia, and I'm a first-time head of HR. So I spent most of my career in consulting at uh, two of the big human capital firms, And I'd say about half of my work was, remember the old HR transformation consultants that used to write those business cases and put in PeopleSoft and Workday and shared services and all that? I did that for about half my work. And then later I um, was able to really do some interesting work on talent strategy. And I ran an assessment business and a leadership business. So it's been a really, really interesting career. And being head of HR at Vizier is sort of a passion project and a whole new world for me. And you've been with Vizier for a few years now, haven't you, Paul? Yeah, six years and change, I think. And uh, what an adventure. Like, it's one thing to evaluate technology and put in technology and help HR functions operate. It's another thing to A, run the function and B, work within the technology that helps change the way we think about HR and human capital. It's its just a completely different perspective. And I know, Paul, as, as part of your role at Vizia, you, you spend a lot of time obviously meeting with, with customers, meeting with some of your peer CHROs in, in, in other organizations. And also know you've delivered a series of, of talks in the last couple of years on, on how to use HR data like a CFO. So I suppose the obvious question is, why the CFO? I think I know part of the answer, but I'll let you explain. The second part of that is, what are CFOs doing with their data that that HR could learn from? You know, it's interesting. All those years advising, it's one thing to advise. It's another thing to sit in the chair of the role you've been advising to. 
I guess I've always sort of been fascinated by talent strategy and the HR function. I really have been a student of it. It's interesting. Do you ever scratch your head sometimes at the decisions people make around people where you're like, wow, I don't know if that was really aligned with the business or I don't know if you really had a like a complete view of how you should have made that decision. And to this day, I'm surprised at how many people decisions are made off of instinct or inertia or tradition. And then all those other things we talk about, bias or, uh, I mean, there are so many things that can influence a people decision alongside with data and facts, et cetera. And man, I remember advising heads of HR and we talk about diversity. And I think one of the hardest things about being a head of HR is going in front of the board one day, and I'll use diversity just because it's an easy example. I could use turnover. I could use almost anything, cost. And you always build a chart up and to the right that right, you know, you're going to improve. All charts must go up and to the right. You're going to improve engagement. You're going to improve diverse representation. You're going to improve retention. Anyway, I think watching heads of HR invest money and articulate strategies yet come back a year later and they, they were like, hey, let's let's change our workforce composition only to realize the actual decisions that show up in that chart are the collective sum of lots of decisions distributed across an organization. So as much as you may have in the C-suite all the best intentions around things like diversity and engagement, it's lots of little decisions that are scattered. So I used to watch, again, those decisions around people it almost felt like there was optionality or, or uh, you know, other things that would influence them. So who's good at that? What job in, is good at unpacking business strategy into a set of documents, numbers from two statements, distributing it across the organization, and then holding up a mirror to all the decisions 12 times a year or more or less, but always with an absolute... I'm going to make a, a decision and it is either going to be aligned to or departing from where we all want to go. The CFO does this amazing job of taking business strategy, unpacking it into financial data, distributing it across the organization and creating this alignment mechanism and this mirror to help everyone hold up that moment that they are about to make a decision and really help people show how it shows up as the collective sum in an organizational outcome. How's that for a short answer? It's a good answer that it built up for, I think, which is important. And what are the things that the CFO actually does that the CHRO and other senior HR leaders could learn from? I think you distilled it down to four things, I think, didn't you? Yeah. And so, David, this will be my attempt at short form answers, which I'm so desperately working on as part of my uh, personal development. But I think there's four things that the CFO does that the CHRO can learn from. Cadence, curation, context, and conversation. So let me break those down for you. Again, it's, it's cadence, curation, context, and conversation. So what do I mean by cadence? A rhythm. You know, in HR, we often wait for people to ask us for data. The CFO publishes that data 12 times a year, whether you want it or not. They're going to have a point of view around and it creates a heartbeat. It creates a checkpoint for everybody to know that I made a set of decisions. They're showing up in this number. The next set of decisions and how it shows up in that number is up to me, right? I mean, think about it. How many 
months or quarters can a leader go departing from what the expected result is? They're either going to be a hero or a goat at the end of the month, end of the quarter. HR can do that same thing by instead of waiting for data, you know, for people to ask for data, pushing it out there. And by the way, it's okay. Sometimes it's slow data. Sometimes it's boring data. But the funny thing is when you go out as an HR person, when you see something in your data, maybe it's a turnover spike, but the person you're trying to convince that it's a problem has never seen that data before. They're like, I don't know, is this good or bad? They don't know if it's signal or noise. So that's why it's really important. Just like you know that check engine light is there in your dashboard, in your car. It's, it's only meaningful when it goes on because you know it's always there and you know it's normal to be off. I realized I just dated myself. Are there even check engine lights built into cars nowadays? Uh. <laughs> You're asking the wrong person about cars, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> same here. So cadence is about a rhythm. And curation, I think, is the same thing. When the CFO puts together financial data and distributes it across the organization, each FP&A person, they're not giving the same data to everybody. They're curating it because each business unit may have to focus on a different thing. Maybe it's productivity, maybe it's pricing, maybe it's market share, maybe it's, you know, wh whatever it might be, the data is curated to focus on a certain thing. So like when you throw out a turnover chart, in some parts of your organization, turnover may be great. And some it's, you know, and actually desirable in other parts, or it doesn't matter, right? It's not core to the business. In other places, it may be incredibly critical that you have continuity of staff, right? Sameness does not always yield greatness when it comes to talent strategy. It's a portfolio. So it's really important to curate that content to get people to focus on what's most important to that segment's talent strategy. That's a really important concept. And then I think the third thing is context. Context is king. I often see people analytics functions, you know, respond to a request with a chart or a graph or something. Man, I got to tell you, you send that to one person, they send it to five other people. And the conversation that you may have had about what that graph or chart means, that gets lost. It's like telephone game. The CFO, when they write the management discussion and analysis, it isn't just a chart or graph or a number, it's words. It's a narrative that gives it context. Here's what's happening. Let me demonstrate it to you in numbers and here's what you should do about it. Here are the ways to deal without it. And that becomes a lasting method of scaling context and scaling the talent strategy beyond the direct person you've talked to because paper and graphs and charts and emails, they move. And then the final thing is conversation, right? So cadence, curation, context, conversation. The CFO talks about numbers, like, let's start with the numbers, right? You know, and there's something grounding about that. I mean, if you've ever seen like a head of HR staff meeting, right? It, it typically goes something like this. All the business partners from all the, uh, all the business units, they go first, right? Oh, what's happening in your group? What's happening in your group, right? Then, you know, somebody from learning and development, you know, tells everyone what book to read this month and comp says, hey, you know, there's... There's, you know, you're spending too much on these people and HR ops, you know, we had the following complaints, et cetera. And then you get to analytics and they're like, oh, we're seeing these trends. No, start with the numbers. If everybody has a set of numbers about their different units, that's sort of consistent. It helps balance a conversation to say, not what is most urgent, not what's most recent, 
not to what's top of mind, but as a rhythm, how are we progressing to a collective or individual set of goals? The second thing it does is it normalizes the use of data for the entire HR function. When the head of HR demonstrates those behaviors of being data literate, of, of stressing numbers, of having them in his or her head at, at all times, that sets the floor, right? That sets the floor for the data literacy and use in the function. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you said that, Paul, because um, by the time this episode goes out, we will have published some research at Insight 222, and we've been looked, looked, looked into data literacy in HR and what are the key things that drive it. And actually, number one is the HR, the CHRO and the HR leadership team modeling that data-driven approach themselves because then other HR professionals will buy into it. Now, obviously, there's other factors that, that you need. And I know we're going to talk about data literally a, a, a bit later in our discussion, but it's interesting that you you pinpointed that one as, as, as well. I wholeheartedly agree. Like, you know, we think about the jobs we want and we also think about influence and we're often sent to the people we sound like. So if you are a business leader as a HR leader and you are trying to talk to the head of sales, I don't know that the language of leadership and engagement uh, or, you know, social science always works. Balancing that with the language of data and numbers and profit and loss and growth and margin and quota attainment. That's where it starts to come together. I think very often, you know, part of the challenge is HR has its own secret language and you need a secret decoder ring in order for it to understand it unless you grew up in the guild. People outside of HR don't use our language every day. And it's important to bridge that gap, not blame those people. It's almost like data can be the common language that, that, that links different parts of the business together. And as you said, if you start the conversation around that, then, you know, then you lead to, you know, hopefully solving certain challenges, maybe you know, reinforcing something that's working well, because let's be honest, it's about understanding what works and why it works. So yeah, really, really interesting. This podcast episode is brought to you by Vizia the people analytics platform for successful HR teams. Close the gap between your HR productivity and business performance. Unlock workforce answers and empower your managers with insights to lead. Easier, faster, on demand, and at scale. Learn more at vizier.com. That's V-I-S-I-E-R.com. when we talked a couple of weeks ago, you, you're seeing that, 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 and again, you're talking to CHROs all the time and you're seeing that PA is being, or people analytics, sorry, is being a little bit squeezed at the moment. So I'd love you to kind of expand on a little, a little bit on that. And also what do you think the main causes of people analytics being maybe stuck a little bit, maybe in some organizations at the moment, you know, what are, what are they missing perhaps? I, I mean, let's talk about this here because I think, you know, I, I, I think you're seeing it too. I think we're all seeing it. I speak to a lot of people in the people analytics community and I'm a little bit worried. I see this plateau being reached. I think people analytics has come a long way. Geez, how long have we been at this now? Like deep in it, like seven years, eight years, nine yeah. years, 10 years. Yeah, at least. <laughs> all right. And and that makes us old in, in people analytics. <laughs> I mean, I remember when there wasn't even a job called head of people analytics. Remember that? 
This is relatively new. And so great work has been done to understand how business impacts people. And I think it is incredibly powerful and meaningful in today's world. The way we look at engagement, the way we look at diversity, the way we look at burnout, the way we look at how business has taken a toll on people, right? And the what we understand about sentiment, what we understand about how people exit, right? Or what drives retention. Great, great strides have been made, but I see it sort of hitting a wall. We've worked a lot on how business impacts people in the pursuit of profit, growth, et cetera, the toll it's taken. And look, social justice movement, pandemic, all these things, mental health, we've had to understand this. But now we've reached this wall of productivity gap, right? There's a huge productivity gap and a labor shortage and capital's expensive. Hiring people is more expensive than it ever has been. Investing in everything is more expensive. Like people are, are searching for these more predictable returns, right? And human capability is the last indivisible element of corporate performance to truly be conquered, right? We've conquered finance, we've conquered supply chain. And all the work in how understanding how business impacts people and human psychology and, and all the great work done in industrial psychology has led us to this moment to better unlock individual and organizational potential. But it requires us to think about the data and the delivery of HR services differently. People analytics is often constrained by HR's own silos and thinking and siloed data, right? Like you get the HRAS data, right? You get the learning data is governed by learning people. You get the comp data governed by comp data. And a lot of times the people analytics group has had to wrestle all that data in combination. But the real insights around how people can impact business, the real paths and, and the use of the language around margin, growth, et cetera, you know, EPS, that lays in the combination of data outside HR with people data, putting people at the center of analytics in business, right? When you start to take HR data with finance data, which I think a lot of people do do, you can really get to some interesting stuff. You can understand the relative contribution of pay versus retention. That's something simple. When you start to layer in the data around production, Salesforce, Jira, whatever has healthcare outcomes scores, there are all these different things that are of more interest to the business than HR. You then start to understand the relative impact of HR programs and investments on people on not just big number outcomes like, you know, margin, but like sales at quota attainment, right? Or customer retention, right? You can draw the line backwards from how did I train someone? How did they spend their time all the way to, you know, did it have a business impact or did we even hire correctly? Gets even more interesting when we stop thinking about the systems of HR and start thinking of the systems of work and we bring in network data so that we can hold a mirror up to how deep are our connections at a customer or within an organization. How did we spend our time? You know, who do we connect with? I feel like I'm going on and on, but I think you get my point. 
getting beyond HR data is, is a means to an end. The end is a business outcome. And you can't understand how people impact business if you don't have as much business data in that discussion as you have people data. No, no, it really makes sense. You know, it's, I mean, at a high level, it's, you know, what are the people factors that impact most on sales, revenue, profit, customer loyalty, all those types of things that we could come up with, you know, then thinking about, okay, so what are the outcomes we're actually trying to, to move here, business outcomes that we're trying to move? What data do we need? You know, so that's people data clearly, but that's also different data coming from the business, you know, whether it's from finance, whether it's from operations or, or somewhere else, or maybe data sources that we haven't traditionally tapped into. So that's network data that you mentioned there. I want to just dig in on this for a second, right? Because this requires us to love a problem that is outside of HR. And it's funny, at the DNA of HR, a lot of people invest for efficiency. A lot of people start people analytics functions in it and fund them because they're looking for an efficient way to do reporting, not necessarily what is the business outcome, right? And, and the psychology of this is huge to understand, right? Because investing and spending in one P&L where the benefit is actually happening in another, that's hard for a lot of organizations to wrap their head around, right? Because they often think about what their own P&L, it's headcount, power, whatever that dynamic is. But now you're falling in love with a problem that is outside of HR, that is truly a business problem. I want to like tear through one example and just get real specific with the systems. Think about that sales example. Think about gong data, right? Being able to listen to a call, understand who talked more or less, you know, understand what keywords were used. Think about the training that happened in order to prepare somebody for that, right? Think about who they invited to that meeting, that sales meeting, and how that shows up in a network score was how deeply did they penetrate? Did a salesperson penetrate an organization? How broad was their constituency? How syndicated is that purchase going to be? And then work that all the way back to, I don't know, their pipeline. And so if you think about that, the traditional way that HR approached it was at the end of the quarter, end of the year, let's look at someone's quota and let's give them a performance rating also. And all that retrospective look. Now you're switching it and you're getting in the headspace of a manager to help them not reconcile somebody's past performance, but see where they're headed in their performance and to see the behaviors and how they match it up against the best performing people and give them insights in where to drive the car, not where the car wound up. That's a different sort of HR thinking. Yeah, and that, that leads quite nicely to the question I was going to ask, Paul. It's almost like what you're saying is, instead of metaphorically looking down, as, as maybe HR has done in the past, looking at the function and thinking, you know, oh, how are we going to, what work are we going to do, blah, 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 blah. You know, what analytics are we going to use to look at our work? They need to be looking up and outside at the business, more of an outside-in approach. So we've we talked about that kind of bit, but so what else do CHROs, and it is the CHRO really that needs to direct this work, yes, with their HR leadership team, hopefully with the head of people analytics on the HR leadership team. What do they need to be doing to get their people analytics back on track? I, I think there's a couple of things, right? First of all, um, there's like sort of behavior and philosophy. 
right? Um, Josh Burson calls it falling in love with the problem, not falling in love with the solution. I think HR has benefited greatly from all of the transformation that's gone on, right? The systems are in damn good shape. You know, the data is good enough. Stop cleaning your data. The more you get it out there, the cleaner it will stay. Stop trying to find a zero noise or complaint HR function. It's good enough. This was the moment you've invested for is to flip the switch and impact business problems, right? That's so I think the head of HR has to have that context. The second one is this notion of outside in thinking, understand business outcomes and work backwards. That requires new thinking and new leadership from heads of HR on talent strategy. You know, it's funny, um, before I joined Vizier, one of my favorite pieces of consulting work I did involved looking at talent strategies across a, a couple of really large companies. And man, David, they all said, if I, if I crossed off the names, you couldn't, you could barely tell off, tell the strategies apart. It was improve engagement, reduce turnover. Um, they were these sort of big sweeping generalizations. They were not talent strategies that were granular and specific enough by critical role and or business unit and geography to hang all those distributed decisions off of. I will tell you, it's hard to write good talent strategy, but we really have to make good progress in that because good talent strategy is that North Star for everyone's decisions. People analytics is the ability for the CHRO to take talent strategy and collapse their distance to impact on all of those talent decisions and business outcomes by turning that strategy into numbers and distributing it. I know I'm right back where we started this discussion, but the CHRO cannot look at people analytics like it's a technology thing. It's a strategy thing. It is the most core function in HR. It should be number one. If your head of people analytics isn't reporting directly to you, change that. If your head of people analytics isn't in the conversation with the CFO and you, change that. I mean, there are organizations like there are some people who are really out there. They're doing some really smart things with people analytics. They're looking at it like an FP&A function. The business partners are looking more like FP&A people or mini CHROs of their own divisions. And numbers is what helps drive the rhythm and connection to the talent strategy and also brings both clarity and accountability to all of those people decisions. That's really interesting what you're saying, Paul, because a lot of what you said really resonates with the research that we've done here at Insight 22. And I know the, the, the research that you've, that you've done at Vizier as well, where Yes, you know, if, if the people analytics leader is on the HR leadership team, it said something to the rest of HR that people analytics is important enough to be on the HR leadership team. It means that the CHRO is hopefully then modeling that behavior and the HR leadership team are modeling that behavior. It means that the people analytics leader is probably getting more time with the CFO and their team and the CEO even as well. And it, it's really interesting. We see that those companies that are doing what we've been talking about tying people analytics work to business outcomes on a continuous basis are those organizations where it's elevated. And I think, you know, we get to a point where people analytics isn't a function, it's pervasive, right? 
It is just the way HR does business, the same way it brings in the principles of industrial psychology and, and basic, you know, uh, human behavior and comp theory and all those different, you know, so social sciences with data science, right? And it isn't like a special thing, a, 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 you know, look, Vizier was created so that you didn't have to have teams of analysts that you went to to understand data. The whole point is everybody should be able to use analytics, not some special team, you know, in some guarded closet somewhere. This is really important. It also speaks to the challenges that HR has overcoming some traditions that have been stratified by the pursuit of efficiency. HR has very much you know, their data and systems and their approach to data and systems mirrors their org chart, which is a set of specialties built for scale. And my God, great things have been done in creating specialty functions in HR, right? You know, it is amazing what has happened in the last 15, 20 years to create these deep domains with proven methods and, and repeatable, scalable methods. But the problems that HR needs to solve in human productivity are not a learning problem, a employee relations problem, a comp problem. They are not a singular problem. They are connected problems. And we see all the major consultancies, Burson, Deloitte, uh, McKinsey, et cetera, talking about a next evolution in what the HR delivery model looks like. I've heard everything from systemic HR to connected HR to exponential HR. There's, there's lots of terms. Even, you know, Dave Ulrich, who helped us understand how with the three-legged stool to create these scales and efficiencies and globalize HR, talks about this same thing. It's a connected problem forward HR that transcends the boundaries and org charts and specialties. I don't know what the answer is. But I do know it requires new thinking, new leadership, and a set of data that transcends these internal borders of HR. Yeah, it's almost like data is a thing that links all those traditional silos together. And as you say, connects everything so you understand it at the level you need to understand it at. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Paul, I want to talk about a couple of things. Number one, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the legislation and the, the regulation that's coming in and, and why that's important for people and six and HR professions. Then we're going to very much look at generative AI and, and also some of the things that you're doing at Vizio around that as well. So everything that we've talked about so far, you know, really highlights the need to that the HR professionals. So we talk about a lot about upskilling and reskilling. HR professionals themselves, you know, also need to be upskilled and reskilled and 
and that goes right up to the the HR leadership teams as well. You know, there's new regulations coming in. You know, we obviously the, the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, there's much more disclosure of human capital reporting now required uh, for companies listed on on that exchange. We're seeing obviously in Europe with the EU Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which is a bit of a mouthful, so we just call it CSRD from now on. Um, that that also requires organisations to publicly report and disclose certain workforce data. We can see where this is moving, but it's not. It's not only HR functions and professionals that need to be upskilled. It's actually there's a growing importance for, for people managers as well, the people that actually use this data and hopefully use it to make decisions in the flow of work. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and what you're seeing as someone that's been a consultant that's now running HR within Vizia, but also speaking to to customers and, and, and your peers in, in those organizations every day. Uh, let's let's take this in two directions. Let's first, can we talk about those frontline people leaders first? Frontline people leaders, man, that's where the rubber meets the road. At the end of the day, you may hate or love your company. You stay or go. Uh, all the data shows you stay or go primarily because of your relationship with your frontline leader. You can have all the amazing engagement programs, benefits, culture, etc. If you're a frontline leader and you have an amazing bond, it can outperform the corporate culture. If they, If you have a crappy bond or you have a crappy leader, that person's going to leave. That last mile is critically important. But what's funny is I think that that group is incredibly underserved by HR. You know, we talk about leadership investments and leadership dollars. Man, frontline people, leadership, raise the floor. We talk about employee self-service and manager self-service around transacting. Like manager self-service has very much become one of those things that was pushing HR's administrative work on somebody else. They resent that stuff, by the way, okay? Giving those frontline people leaders access to insights, patterns, predictions, propensity to exit uh, data, giving them, you know, data that isn't like, you know, really trusting them like adults to understand how their, again, their data, they, they work every day with time data, production data, et cetera, and they have to beg for people data. Make it easy for those people to fly the plane. Make it easy for them to, you know, you know, like Waze makes it easy for you to know where to stop for coffee, uh, pick up dry cleaning on an optimal route to get to where you have to go. Do that same thing for people leaders, right? That's people leader data. But when you talk about sustainability and when you talk about the audience of, I'm going to call it investors, let's look at an example because I think skills is, are amazing. I think skills as a unit of data for connecting all the things we do across HR and outside of HR is hugely important because skills translate to work. And being able to have a, you know, what are the skills we have? How many of those skills are available in the market? How do those skills relate to the different priorities? Those are like looking at the underlying securities of a bond. Good investors don't just take the bond rating agencies, you know, word for, you know, A, A plus, you know, B, B minus. They analyze those underlying securities to understand how to see deeply into what the performance may be. I think boards, investors, et cetera, are going to look to skills data to understand the sustainability of the workforce and the ability to, um, uh, the ability to execute. And I think there's a lot of gold in that. Yeah. 
No, I think you're right. And, and interestingly, skills data in particular is arguably the thing that links a lot of these traditional silos in HR together. If you're hiring for skills, you need to understand skills data to personalize learning, to think about career pathing, to think maybe identify uh, mentors within the organization. But then you also need it from a workforce planning perspective. OK, this is the strategy we're trying to achieve. These are the skills we've got. This is the gap. How are we going to close that gap? Are we going to close that by buying in talent or, or maybe buying in companies? Are we going to build our own? Where are we going to build our own? Where are we going to buy our own? You know, what what about location strategy linked to skills of, uh, in terms of availability of skills and, you know, all different or partners? You know, there's so many things that you can use that skills data for. So you you and I agree this is important, right? But I see a mistake getting made on this, right? People are doing these skills projects or they're only looking at, oh, let's see what skills our candidates have. Or they're doing these, oh, you know, self-report your skills. This is the first place, Vizier included, right, where AI is really making a difference. I remember doing these projects when you were a consultant where you do competency models or, or you'd read job descriptions, you'd hand tag things. Oh, my God, right? Skills are changing. Skills in what is both explicit and inferred and the language of it, it moves faster than you. you and doing a skills project as soon as you're done in the classic language of HR, it's out of date. So Vizier, you know, for example, taking those jobs, looking at that data, inferring the skills, using AI to understand it is so much faster, so much better to build that base level sort of layer of what do you have? What do you need? That's amazing. The advances, that's just one example of where AI is changing the ability to understand sets of data and keep it fresh i think that's the second part yeah yeah you're right because otherwise if you a if you ask people what skills they've got you, you'd probably be lucky to get a 50 percent adoption rate how do you validate that and as you said it's out of date so straight away um, and then how do you connect it to stuff to to, to, to close the gap and, and everything else so yeah really really interesting and that leads on quite nicely paul to, to the next question Obviously, it wouldn't be a podcast in 2023 if we didn't mention the words generative AI. But it, it really does offer the potential, I think, to help bring some of these insights that we, we've got in this data to people leaders and HR professionals faster. But what do you think this means for the future of people analytics? You know, Do you think it will help people analytics scale, get back on track in those some organizations where it isn't? Or do you think it will even replace it? You and I lived through the outsourcing craze. Did I just call it a craze? We lived through the first ERPs being implemented, right? Oh, woe is me. Everyone's going to lose their job. What it wound up doing is helping everybody's job up level, right? Our work continued to be more meaningful. And that's what will happen with AI, right? You know, we will go through a temporary distortion where we can unpack jobs, take, take off parts of them, give it to AI and fill it up with more meaningful work. Yeah, there will be winners and losers. There are in every technology shift and, rev uh, and revolution, right? But in the end, there's always been more winners than losers, and we've benefited as a society and the productivity of our uh, economy overall. So I look forward to that. But, you know, like, okay, I'm going to just give you, like, my favorite thing about AI. Go on. It's just asking a simple question. Tell me what the trend is, right, for turnover in this group. Okay, I don't care what you're using today as your tool set, Vizier, Power BI, no matter what, that can be some work and iterative 
people just want to ask questions and get the data very quickly. And that's what our first huge announcement in uh, AI has been. Uh, we call it V. Uh, and um, it's very exciting. Uh, and so you'll, you'll, you'll hear more about it. Uh, you know, maybe you and I can look at it together in uh, either Vegas or you're not going to Vegas or, or Paris or somewhere fun, right? You know? How does V work? And maybe give some examples of how Vizier customers are going to be able to use it. So the beauty of Vizier isn't, and the, what's hard about large language models, the data sets and the data about the data understanding how the data relates to each other. That's where the people who've built proprietary deep data sets that are normalized across multiple clients and can really reach deep are gonna get fast, insightful responses from generative AI. And so that's the key right there. So I think the first thing it disrupts is the delivery model. How we consume, especially outside of people analytics, our data. I think the second thing it does is it helps us reach deeper into patterns and up-level the high-value work we do in people analytics. And beyond that, man, sky's the limit. I, I just, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. I was with our head of technology and, you know, again, I'm not a, I'm not a programmer, but we were looking at something and he was showing me what it would take to do some of what we can do with AI in writing long SQL statements right? Like it was, it was maddening to see how fast and accurate it gives responses that used to just take hours of, uh, and layers and, and logic problems and nesting uh, of arguments. It's just, it's phenomenal. And I suppose if you're a people manager, you know, you've got so many pressures on, if you ask a question, you actually want the answer almost immediately, don't you? Now, it's always going to be possible, of course. But with the generative AI, that if your data's there and you ask the question the right way, then potentially you're going to get an answer that comes back. That might then prompt another question, of course, but that's the kind of speed of business, isn't it? Exactly, right? So think about the old speed of business partners and the old speed and the current speed of people analytics. You have a question, I give you a set of answers. Appreciative inquiry is the art of getting to the root of a problem. You know, a guy, Mark Sullivan at Lego, he taught me a long time ago, the point of people analytics is not to answer questions. It's to get people to ask better questions. Humans want to ask the next question. So AI is trained to learn. So you ask one question, you didn't get, you didn't understand the answer or you need to go deeper. It just gets better and better as you refine it. And that's how humans ask questions. And that's the speed rather than going back and forth, run me another chart and graph, let's experiment. That's where we're going. And it's going to be awesome. If you catch up with me in Paris, you can show show me um, V as well there, Paul. So, and I think this then leads quite nicely to the final question. And this is a question we're asking everyone on this series. And and I think you've got a great, you know, the, the background that you've got as a consultant and now as a CHRO in a technology company, actually with people technology, people te analytics technology. I get really interested for the answer to this. How can HR leaders build a data-driven and digitally literate culture in HR. Curiosity, model the behaviors you want to see in others. Be fearless. I am not a technologist. You can probably hear that from my answers around AI. And nor am I. So <laughs> You have to be curious and not just curious about data, 
You have to be curious about the moment when people see new information, do they actually change their decision? Understanding that moment and how you harness it is what's going to create a great leader, regardless of whether they're in HR or not. And understanding that moment is noisy. We live in a noisy, noisy world, David. You know this, right? You know, we're constantly pinged tons and email, lots of data. Any leader who can harness that data with a narrative connected to a North Star, bring it down to the moment of, am I going to make a choice? Make sure that data and insight is there at that moment of choice, or at least present of mind, especially when it comes to people decisions in the next economy, the winners will understand their people and they will understand their people, how they operate, how to motivate them and how to use data to see better into those decisions. The losers will rely on instinct, inertia, and tradition, and they will hide their HR data behind the four walls of HR, and they will not connect it to anything else. Man, let's create more winners because it isn't just good for the company, it's good for individuals. The truth we see through data unlocks both individual and organizational potential. And remember, companies only grow when people grow. The sum of corporate growth is the sum of individual growth. And I think we have to get back to those basics. No, I think you're right. And I think actually, if we really realize the full potential of this, actually, if we think about the organization, yes, it will help the organization grow, help people grow. But actually, we can, you know, back to what you were saying right at the start about diversity, equity, and inclusion data uh, around burnout, well-being, all those sorts of things. We're actually improving society. We potentially can improve society as well. Absolutely. More meaningful work, more meaningful decisions, more truth about people. It will be fairer. It will be more just. Let's get to that world fast, man, because they need it. Thank you so much for being a guest on the, on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I always enjoy our conversations. Always very thought-provoking. Can you let listeners know how they can find you on social media, if you do social media, and find out more about your work at Vizier and maybe find out more about V as well? Um, just go to you know www.vizier.com um, and you can learn more. There you can find me on LinkedIn, Paul Rubenstein 100. I am uh, about to do a speaking tour for the rest of the year about outside in thinking and how the CHRO unlocks the potential of talent in the new world. We'll cover talent strategy. We'll cover all those things. Yeah, David, uh, just uh, bring it on. We um, we have a big tent and a big community um, for anybody who's not part of People Analytics. David and I, are, I think, are blessed to be part of a really interesting, growing, and welcoming community. So if you know if you're in People Analytics, listen to these podcasts. Swipe what is it? Swipe up and subscribe. Uh, and then uh, if you're not, um, learn more. Paul, thank you very much, and looking forward to seeing you in Paris. Thank you for joining Paul and I on this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you gained some valuable insights to take with you on your journey towards creating a data-driven HR function. If you did enjoy this episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel so that we can keep producing the show. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. Thanks once again for being part of the Digital HR Leaders podcast community. 
Until next time, take care and let's continue exploring, learning and transforming HR together.